This is a Village Soundcast Network original production. Hi, and welcome to Lends Me Your Ears, the show and podcast that takes a look at current films and theaters or on streaming services and then compares them to films from days gone by and ties them all together into a, a kind of an intricate web of the cinema rotisserie league excellence, I guess, for lack of a better term. But um, this week, uh, we're doing something a little different. Uh, my name is Stephen Cook, and uh, I am a freelance journalist here in Halifax. My name is Karsten Knox. I am a film writer. I have a blog called Flaw on the Iris. You can find it at halifaxbloggers.ca, and I am the host of the Knox office on CBC Information Morning. And this week, we're taking a look at the Oscar race, and not necessarily the films that are nominated, although we'll certainly be talking about those, but some of the outstanding performances by some of the actors who are up for Oscars this year, and some of the other work they've done that might have gone a little bit under the radar in years past, and it'll all be starting right after this. All right, Stephen. So here we are gathered uh, once again in Lends Me Your Ears town to talk about uh, the glitz, the glamour, uh, Tinseltown and the Academy Awards, which uh, will be if people are listening to this uh, this week. It'll be coming up on Sunday, the 12th of March this year. Yeah, we don't always talk about the Oscars because it's, it's really, you know, not the most interesting clutch of films necessarily and and it's it's there's a gajillion and one other shows and articles and things that that get obsessed about the oscar race but uh but this year is an interesting year there's lots of uh films that uh, may not have uh, been considered oscar worthy in years past that that are that are certainly uh in the in the forefront this year uh, you know i don't think a film like everything everywhere all at once might have been considered 10 years ago or so i feel like uh I feel like uh, genre films might be getting a, a, a fairer shake, and uh, and films from uh, from other countries as well, outside of the the foreign language category. So so there is there is stuff to to be intrigued about. But but uh, I like the approach that we're taking by looking at some of our favorite actors that are up for awards this year and some of the work they've done. Yeah, exactly. And it's um, it is th- this is you're right. It, it's it's also a, a race that's it's a much harder to predict this year. I think who is going to win what, and that's part of the pleasure of it as well uh but uh yeah let's let's just go over we're, we're talking about actors today we're just going to uh, dig down a few of the prominent performances that are nominated for for the acting awards and we're going to look at uh the some maybe some films of theirs we hadn't seen from their back catalog uh as well as maybe talk a little bit about the films that they're nominated in uh now best lead actor this year it's austin butler for elvis colin farrell for the banshees of inisherin brendan fraser for the whale paul mescal for after sun bill nighy for living we've of course talked about bill recently and living that was a great movie um best lead actress kate blanchett for tar Anna de Armas for Blonde, Andrea Riseborough for Two Leslie, Michelle Williams for The Fablemans, and Michelle Yeoh for Everything, Everywhere, All at Once. And then the Best Supporting Actor nods. You've got Brendan Gleeson for The Banshees of Inisherin, Brian Tyree Henry for Causeway, Judge Hirsch for The Fablemans, Barry Keoghan for Banshees, and Kei Hugh Kwan for Everything, Everywhere. And Best Supporting Actress, Angela Bassett for Black Panther, Wakanda Forever, Hong Chow for The Whale, Carrie Condon for Banshees, Jamie Lee Curtis for Everything Everywhere and Stephanie Hsu for Everything Everywhere. So that is a pretty actually 
I mean, there's only a couple in there that I kind of scratch my head at, and we won't dwell on that. No. <laughs> so let's instead dwell on work by by the actors uh, that you know who really jumped out at us. One of which is Paul Mescal. Now he is an actor that's very new. I was looking at his body of work. Really, he's only made a handful of films and TV shows. I think his role in the series Normal People was a big break. Uh, he's been in some videos. He's in another film called God's Creatures that I have not seen. And there'll, apparently he'll be in the sequel to Gladiator, which is coming oh, up wow. not too long. He's been cast in that. But he is quite good in After Sun, which is about an Irish father and his tween daughter on a Turkish vacation in the 1990s. Um, where and, and basically it's about what the father is hiding from his young daughter. I, I like the film a lot. I, I don't know that I liked it as much as some. I know it's made to the top of a few well-regarded uh, critics' um, best-of lists for 2022. I found it a little opaque. I did not. I didn't. It didn't touch me the way that it touched some. Well, uh, yeah, it's it's purposefully opaque. I think you you're asked to read a lot into the film, which uh, which doesn't always work. But uh, but I found it worked for me, and uh, his performance is terrific. Frankie Cario, uh, Corio rather, who who plays the daughter, is fantastic. Uh, you know, hopefully uh, she can uh, have a, a long career uh, into adulthood. She's very charming. And, uh, you know, the camera loves her here. So I'm hoping that, uh, that that she can make a go of it. And and Charlotte Wells, I mean, it's her first feature film. I think I think uh, things click pretty well, all, considering all the factors going into this film. I, th- I think it's a pretty remarkable achievement. Yeah, I liked how it, it uses this sort of technology, right? Because they were yeah. filming a lot of it. And we get the sense that the elder version of of the the daughter is watching some of this footage and trying to piece together something that she wasn't sure of or couldn't see when she was a child. And now as an adult, she's trying to understand something essential about her father. Uh, And we also get a sense of that too, through the course of the film and watching it. Um, But yeah, it is, it is strong stuff. And I think, as I said, I, I, it wasn't, it wasn't my favorite film, but I, I, I admired its, I guess, the effort to the uh, the the way that the the story was told, maybe even more so than its uh, than you know the, I guess its its achievement. Um, but uh, we want to talk a little bit about Lost Daughter, which is uh, weirdly similar <laughs> to After Sun. <laughs> yeah, it is in a strange way, uh, and this is again Paul Mescal. Uh, one of his earlier works, but not very long ago, I think in 2021, so only a couple of years old. This was written and directed by Maggie Gyllenhaal, also, I guess, her first feature after years of being a prominent actor, um, based on a novel by Elena Ferrante. And uh, it's a film where about, it's actually available on Netflix, we should mention. Yeah. Um, and it's about 20 minutes into it. I was just like, what? what is going on here? Like, I, I just didn't, you know, how I am with plot. Like, I really, I look for it. I, I want to get a sense of the structure. And there, it is, it it felt very uh, amorphous for a while. Um, but then it, it's more or less a travelogue about an academic, Lita, played by Olivia Coleman, who's visiting a Greek resort uh, for some alone time. And she meets the caretaker there, Lyle, uh, played by Ed Harris, who sets her up in an apartment and then she meets Will Mescal, who's the guy who serves ice cream and drinks to visitors on the beach. And everything's great until this oddly threatening Greek-American family appears on the beach, ruining Lita's good time. They're loud and they're coarse and disruptive. Um, but the story really starts when Lita speaks with one of the family, Callie, and uh, it's about a forthcoming child. She's pregnant. And the themes of the tale begin to manifest in Lita's apparent discomfort. I mean... 
this is, um, you know, and there's another one of the, the family has another young mother, Nina, played by Dakota Johnson. She loses her daughter on the beach and Lita finds the girl and that makes a connection between the women. Uh, and then we get this sort of parallel narrative where we go into the past and Lita is played by Jesse Buckley, who is struggling to be a mother to her two daughters while working on her dissertation. Um, and that's when the tension really, really comes about. And it's, it is this complex psychological drama about the challenges of motherhood for women who feel maybe overwhelmed by it. Yeah, it's, uh, you know, it does take a while to get into it, to get into the, the flow of the film and the, the jumps back and forth in time and, and, and to, to kind of, to warm to Lita as a character because she is, uh, you know, not a perfectly likable character. She's very complex and, and, um, you know, kind of a, a often a bad mother and a bad and a, and a, and not a great wife either. And, and, uh, you know, so we, but she's, she's kind of the person we have to identify with over the course of this film. And then the film, uh, you know, challenges us to, to kind of accept her warts and all as it were. And, and, uh, you know, you couldn't ask for two better actors to play the character, uh, in the current day. And then in the past, uh, Jesse Buckley and Olivia Coleman are, are a couple of my favorite actors working right now. And, and they're, fantastic you know making up the two halves of this role but it's it is a challenge to to kind of accept this character who can who who can be quite pleasant on the surface and quite lovely but but also very selfish and uh kind of a, have the the blinkers on it in a, in a in a fairly self-destructive way yeah no absolutely and uh you know Coleman is the queen of wonderfully awkward moments. Like yes. when she sees someone on the beach, she thinks she knows she calls out to them, but it's not them. <laughs> and then she, at one point she sort of sidles up behind Lyle, the, the mezcal character in the bar and whispers in his ear before running out, uh, you know, or there's a scene where she sings along to talking heads or Bon Jovi's living on a prayer at a dance party. I mean, it's like these wonderfully spontaneous feeling moments. Uh, and it lifts what is a pretty heavy, you know, thematic film into something that's a lot more fun and lively and, uh, uh, you know, and it, I mean, it's, it's a masterclass from Coleman. She's so good in this as she is in so many, so many films. Yeah. There are definitely comedic moments in it. I mean, it, it's, I think, uh, I think Gyllenhaal does a great job at balancing all these different moods over the course of the film. There, there is, the, there is humor. I mean, Peter Sarsgaard is great as the professor that she has an affair with oh. and, uh, you know, he's very pompous and full of himself, but also kind of funny and uh it's always a treat to see him and uh and and you know mezcal kind of stands out it's an early role it's it's i don't think it's meant to be a kind of standout role or standout performance but he's very charming as, as the guy who's just working there for the summer and 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 befriends her and you know it'd be nice to see some more of him but that's kind of what the role calls for but he's he's he's, he's very good and very memorable in it yeah, he is. And I, I think, you know, I, I really have um, a huge, huge amount of respect and admiration for Maggie Gyllenhaal for what she, she does with what is, you know, there's like taboos being being uh, touched upon here that uh, you don't see, you know, messed with very often in, in feature films and, and does a great job in managing all of them and questioning them. Um, you know, and I, I don't know that all of it worked for me. There were a few times when I thought some of the dialogue was a little ex expository um and 
Yeah, and then there were there were elements that you know it it uh, there's a few plot developments in the final few minutes where yes. things get more suggestive and jagged, and uh, and I I felt like the film ends up leaving a few questions that I didn't I wanted answers to. Yeah, and the, yeah, Lita commits an act early on in the film that has serious repercussions late in the film that bring us back around to the sort of prelude scene where she's kind of staggering around on a beach, and. Uh, and yeah, I didn't have a, I mean, aside from the fact that she can sometimes be an a-hole, that, that was kind of the only motivation I could think of. Like she just decided in that moment early on to to just be a jerk for no reason, <laughs> which she sometimes does both in her young incarnation and, and uh, as, a, as an older adult. And, and uh, I mean, that's all I could come up with. For, I mean, there, there might be some other clues. I feel like I need to go back and watch it again. Uh, I feel like it's a film that will reward repeated viewings um with clues as to what's going on inside her head and uh and and i can't wait to see what uh what Dylan hall does next as a director yeah absolutely absolutely and one thing i wanted to ask you steven in the first five minutes of the film lita arrives in greece and we get a lot of extreme close-ups including sort of a golden hour shot where the literally the shadow of the camera plainly crosses uh-huh. coleman's face now given the precision with which gyllenhaal tells her story with legendary dp elaine louvart uh i can't believe this was a mistake and i wondered whether or not they made this choice intentionally i mean they must have left that shot in because they wanted to feel like you know it, it but it um I just it'd be interested in hearing what you think about the choice of doing that. I, I have no idea. Maybe they just uh, thought it would go by quickly enough that no one would notice. <laughs> I don't you know. know it's that really. <laughs> no, I don't know. People do weird things with uh, with movies and choices of shots and letting mics stay in focus. I, I mean. I, I honestly don't know. Yeah. I'm just wondering if maybe there's an aesthetic reason for like keeping us, reminding us from the top that we're watching a film and the, the kind of the choices around it. Like it's, it's, it's like the, the structures of it. Um, but, uh, but yeah, it, it's one of those questions again, that the film, uh, posits that we can either run with, I guess, or, or uh, it can, it can, uh, stymie us i don't i i think i I just anyway i mean i don't i don't think it was a mistake i think there was a reason for it i just can't quite figure out what it is and welcome back to lends me your ears as we look at some of the oscar nominees for best actor supporting and lead on uh, on this week's show and looking at some of the other films not necessarily the oscar nominated performances but maybe some of the other titles that are worth looking up and uh, seeking out by some of these actors now uh, you know some some of these uh actors uh, people like paul mescal and and even andrea riseborough might be kind of new to listeners that they're, they're it seems like it's only in recent years that they've been uh, delivering performances of 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 mass wide acclaim but uh our uh, our next uh, performer really needs no introduction. I don't think Colin Farrell uh, is up for his terrific performance in the Banshees of Inisherin, uh, and he certainly has a long filmography to choose from. I mean, we had any number of films we could have gone to. Yeah, because, we could have done the whole show just on him. Yeah, we could do a whole Colin Farrell show. There's certainly <laughs> lots of you know he's he's been great in great films. He's been great in not so great films. Um, 
you know, he's had his moments where he's maybe not been on top of his game. His career has had its ups and downs and, and, uh, but he seems to be riding high right now with some, some great performances. Yeah, absolutely. And he, he's, he's shown his courage in trying different things. I mean, when he got known as an actor in the late nineties in films like Tigerland and Ordinary Decent Criminal, with Kevin Spacey, which who I gather gave Farrell a bit of a boost in Hollywood. Um, and then he was in the Bruce Willis picture Hearts War. I think it was Steven Spielberg's Minority Report that broke him big. I think that's when people really recognized him. And then his next few movies were thrillers like Phone Booth and The Recruit opposite Al Pacino. And then he was the villain Bullseye in the Daredevil movie with Ben <laughs> yes. Affleck, which he was one of the best things. And he in was that definitely movie. the best thing in that. Film. Yeah. <laughs> uh, then he did a few epics, Oliver Stone's Alexander, where he even now makes fun of his blonde, uh, you know, hairdo in that uh, in that film. And then Terrence Malick's The New World, uh, which I think we've talked about. Yes, we did we Terrence have. Malick uh, episode. And he was in Michael Mann's Miami Vice, which is a favorite of mine from 2006, and Woody Allen's Cassandra's Dream. Uh, he saved maybe his best work for In Bruges, the Martin McDonough film with uh, Brendan Gleeson. Of course, we've talked about the Banshees of Inisherin on this uh, show, um, you know, and, and Martin McDonough's work. Um, now, he had a bit of a fallow period between In Bruges and The Lobster, but the Yorgos Lanthimos film and its follow-up, Killing of a Sacred Deer, that showed really the kind of risks that Farrell is willing to take with his career these days. And he's kept it up with movies like The Beguiled after Yang and the recent blockbuster, The Batman, where he is completely unrecognizable as the Penguin. <laughs> he basically put on a Robert De Niro mask. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> uh, he can pretty much play anything, I think. He's a character actor who looks like a leading man, and that is that is some serious power in Hollywood. Uh, whether he wins for this role or not, I would be quite happy if he does for Banshees of Inishirin. Um But, you know, having talked about a Neil Jordan film, in our last episode, one that had some problems, uh, that, uh, you know, uh, Marlowe, which I think is still in cinemas. This one was a real pleasure because it felt a lot more close to Jordan's heart uh, as it was written by the filmmaker. Uh, and we have a charming story uh, on Dean. It's about an Irish fisher. His name is Syracuse, also known as Circus or Clown, as a feral who he pulls a woman into his boat up on his fishing net. And her name is on Dean. She's pretty She's pretty, and she sounds like she might be Polish. Uh, she's played by Alicia Bakleda, and uh, it seems that she is a Selkie, which is like a mermaid, sort of a seal-like mermaid, and she has special power. She can sing, and that attracts fish to Circus's boat. Uh, and there's also a man wandering around the, the land looking for her. Uh, now, Circus also has a daughter, Annie, played by Allison Barry, who has a kidney trouble, gets around town in an electric wheelchair. So this is a you know, modern take on folklore. Annie knows all about Selkies and fairy tales, so serves as a kind of commenter on everything that's happening with this connection between this fisher and this so-called Selkie. And uh, it's gorgeously shot along the County Cork coastline, a lovely, whimsical quality to it, and a great score. I actually really felt for the actors in this film because it looks cold, and <laughs> they are having to get to the water a lot. A lot. <laughs> Yeah, I, I had a real soft spot for this film, too. Of course, County Cork is where my ancestors came from uh, to come to the to North America to work on the Erie Canal is the, the family lore uh, in the 1820s or thereabouts. So uh, it's uh, it's it's an area of the world that I'm dying to get back to at some point. And uh, it's great to see it on on film. It's it's beautifully captured uh in this film and, and Neil Jordan, it's, it's definitely great to see him on home turf working with uh, a story that seems close to his heart, as you say. And I'm, I'm surprised this 
got so little attention when it came out. I mean, considering its star and its director, it's the sort of thing you'd think would at least uh, have, have got, you know, some sort of play, but it really, it did not seem to show up in, in theaters and, uh, and kind of vanished without a trace. I think uh, I watched it on, I think, Tubi. Yeah, it's on Tubi. Maybe, so yeah. yeah, you watch it for free on Tubi if you don't mind putting up with the occasional ad breaks, but they show it uncut, um, which is always great. And, uh, and, and it's a good quality copy of the film, so. Yeah, uh, but uh, but that seems it seems like an ignoble fate for for something that's so dreamy and enjoyable. Yeah, for sure. And Farrell is just so winning in this. I mean, he, his accent work is terrific. He he has a a quite a different accent here in you know the County Cork Colin Farrell versus the Banshees of Inishir <laughs> yeah. Colin Farrell. So clearly, I and I don't know enough about how the accent varies through across Ireland, but clearly there are some variances because you can tell in the way he oh, speaks. Oh, definitely. Yeah, definitely a lot more denser yeah. uh, in, um, in Banshees of Inishir. Uh, you know, the, the film obviously reminds me a lot of uh, John Sayles' The Secret of Roan Inish, um, which was filmed roughly in the same area as the Banshees of Inishir. And, and it, it, um, it, it, you know, it's about a, a woman who may or may not be a Selkie and there's the, the whole, that whole folklore has kind of gone over there, but it's, it's not a modern day film. So, so that, that's what distinguishes Ondine in that it does have a modern day appeal and that, uh, that kind of air of magic realism kind of, uh, kind of starts to evaporate when the mysterious strangers show up and we start to learn the truth about what's actually going on. I, I thought that was all very cleverly handled because you go, it's for, for a while there, it, they kind of trick you into thinking maybe there's something mystical happening. And uh, I, I like the way that it kind of progresses into uh, not necessarily a thriller, but, you know, something with a bit of more uh, suspense as the story goes along. Yeah, this is where you and I split on this one, Steve. Oh, okay. Uh, yeah, I thought Ondine herself doesn't really have much agency or personality. She, she really, we don't really understand what she wants, and that's, we only see her through Syracuse's eyes or Annie's eyes until the third act when that stranger's presence makes him, you know, makes himself feel. And then I was disappointed in that it wasn't a oh, mystical okay. aspect. I just felt like, like, oh, we're going to find some secret to her purpose here. And it's going to kind of connect all these aspects that sort of the magic realism aspects. But then I just felt like it all came apart when it's, oh. it turns out that the her origins are explained and it becomes kind of a thriller. Um, I mean, I really like the actors and I was glad to have seen it. I don't think it ruins the experience, but I, I just personally, my, my heart sank a little bit and was like, oh, this isn't magical at all. This is just a thing that's, I mean, we're spoiling it for listeners, but, but I mean, you can, I, I wasn't entirely convinced that that's the way the film was going to go, oh, okay. but, well, I, but I, I kind of hoped it would. I, I didn't mind the transition because they drop hints there's, you know, clearly when she, she doesn't want to meet other people, she doesn't want to go into town, um, you know, for fear of being seen, uh, don't want to be seen in general. Uh, th that kind of sets us up. I, I felt it set us up reasonably well for, for the third act of the film. And, uh, you know, and I, I still had a fair bit of sympathy towards her, her plight, you know, that she figured she would just, I mean, she is being kind of a con artist. She's letting them kind of leading them on a little yes, bit. Yes. And, uh, but I, I don't know that it's necessarily in a bad way. It's out of self-preservation. Self and, yeah, and I as thought, we understand, I thought, yeah. I thought she was fairly charming as, as Ondine, so. Well, I think she is, she is charming enough. I, apparently, and this is, I guess, uh, this is third-hand information, so I can't quite confirm it, but apparently she and Colin Farrell were in a relationship at the time, the two actors, so they definitely have, have a kind of chemistry. It's an IMDb trivia, so it must be true. Must be true. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, um, I, think, I, think, I think she may have even, uh, they may have even had a 
child together, if I'm not mistaken. Okay. Well, uh, um, I also like that Stephen Rea is in this, a frequent actor in Jordan's films. He plays a priest, and Syracuse goes to see him for confession. There's some really good scenes scenes with the two of them talking. I, I, I think if you have a, I think if you have a film set in Ireland, you have to have Stephen Ray in. I think it's, I think there's a <laughs> law, right? And I guess, I mean, he was such a vital part of the grind game, the, the Jordan film that really kind of broke through in such a big way but it's yeah it's 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 sort of a minor role here he probably shot his stuff in three days or something like that but yeah. he is he is a great uh asset to the film you know like he keeps telling um Syracuse that the, the confessional is not an AA meeting <laughs> you know and, and you know, it's like you can confess but uh, you know I'm not a therapist I'm just I'm just a priest kind of thing yeah yeah and uh, he kind of stretches the bounds of their, their friendship and relationship you know between uh parishioner and, and priest and so on. And then that's that's an aspect of the film I quite enjoyed as well. Yeah, for sure. There's a great scene where he's sort of, um, uh, yeah, Syracuse has fallen off the wagon and he is up in a tree in the morning, sleeping it off. And the priest comes around, I guess, on his bike or something and they have a conversation. It's, it's um, yeah, there's a lot of, I like the whimsy, I guess just, I mean, I, I, I love thrillers, but I guess I love the whimsy more in the, in Ondine than I, than I love the, the, the reality. Uh, but you know, that's, that's the way it goes sometimes. Um, now we should also talk a little bit about uh, Carrie Condon, who is also nominated uh, for, her role in Banshees of Inisherin, and uh, we decided to go back and look at some of her work. Um, she's she's an Irish actor born in Tipperary. Um, I didn't know much about her before she was in Banshees, but I think I probably knew her best as the voice of Friday, one of the computers in the MCU that works for Tony Stark. That's right. Um, looking at her IMDb page, uh, there is a lot of stuff. She's worked with Colin Farrell numerous times, it seems. She was in Ned Kelly in 2003, the, about the Australian folk hero. Uh, she was in Rome and The Walking Dead, two series that you know I know have a lot of fans. She was also in The Last Station, a great film about the last years of Tolstoy, starring Christopher Plummer, which I really recommend. Last Station is a terrific movie. Uh, it's one of the few really great, um, I think, literary biopics. Um, and uh, she was also in This Must Be the Place with Sean Penn and Dom Hemingway with Jude Law. And she was in Martin McDonough's film, The Three Billboards Outside Ebbing, Missouri. And so, yeah, she, as I mentioned, she's gone. She's, she's worked with, a, I mean, obviously being, working in Ireland uh, and being prominent actor there, she's worked with Martin McDonough as well, going back to when she was a teenager on stage. So, uh, yeah, she, she's pretty great. And it's wonderful that she's gotten this role in Banshees that has given her more prominence. Because I think if she hadn't, I might not have recognized how good she is. Um, and she's in Dreamland, which is directed by, and I'm going to probably butcher his name, but I'm going to give it a shot, Miles Joris Payafrit, uh, and written by Nicholas Wart. And uh, yeah, it's, uh, it's Dreamland is set in a dusty Texas town during the 1930s. We get a whole lot of voiceover setup in the first few minutes, the backstory of the Baker Evans clan, farmers laid low by drought and economic strife. Uh, Finn Cole plays Eugene Evans, Abandoned by his father when he was young, a dreamer and an idealist, his stepfather is played by Travis Fimmel of Vikings fame, and his mother by Carrie Condon. And it's his half little half-sister Phoebe who ends up narrating the, the story, presumably in flashback as an adult. Um, so the director is a filmmaker fond of changing screen formats, swooping cameras, <laughs> and wide-angle lenses. 
Uh, and the film does look good. I mean, it, it really does. But the cin- cinematography doesn't necessarily serve the story. I found it attention-grabbing without enough yeah. reason or consistency. This feels like a new filmmaker who's finally getting his shot, trying on different styles to see what fits. But uh, I don't think a lot of it does. Um, and I also wonder, do they, have, do they have flashlights in Texas in the 1930s? How about lights on bicy- the fronts of bicycles? <laughs> there was a few, a few technical questions could, I had there. You could get lamps for bicycles, I think. Uh, I've, I've seen like these clunky battery-powered lights that you could affix to. Yeah. To I mean, would, would they in, but, in impoverished yeah, Texas? They bother to because batteries probably were expensive. Yeah, um, yeah. But anyway, this is really Marco, Margot Robbie's film. She plays an outlaw and bank robber, Allison Welsh. She hides out in the Evans barn. And that's where she meets Eugene and he ends up helping her and she recruits him to help her get to Mexico. Uh, yeah. So I don't, it's, it, it, this wasn't a film that I, I really loved. I got to say, I felt like it, it had some good ideas, but it didn't really come together. Um, it's mostly, as I said, it's Robbie's film. Um, Condon is, is good in it. She has a handful of scenes, but, uh, but yeah, it's, uh, it, it, I just didn't, I just, it it didn't hold together. Yeah, <laughs> you felt like you'd seen it before. Maybe, yeah, maybe. There is that element of it that that you know you kind of like. Well, I could be watching uh, Bonnie and Clyde, right? <laughs> I you know I kind of wanted to see it mostly because uh, well obviously because Carrie Condon is in it as as the mother Olivia, uh, and and I do like uh, Margot Robbie and 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 I've enjoyed most of her uh, performances in recent years, and this seemed like an interesting. Um, sort of showcase role for her but it, it yeah it does feel like like a mixed bag of, of, of uh, familiar parts i guess for for lack of a better word i mean I, there's some some good location work i think like as you say v- visually it it uh works overtime <laughs> in a lot of ways uh you know, some some interesting uh i guess they shot in new mexico so they were able to use some locations that haven't been overused and it gives the the film a uh sort of reasonable dust bowl backdrop i think uh for what's happening here but but uh yeah there there is there's a certain lack of believability to to uh roby's character and and uh the the, the way events transpire sort of later in the film especially like when they should be heading for the border uh-huh. but it's time to make those big speeches about you know what <laughs> What what you know? Who's been using who, and who means what to who? And yes, like, uh, there's a posse on your trail, <laughs> and she pulls over so they can have, or he pulls over so they can have this argument, and it's like, have the argument later. <laughs> uh-huh. You know, you should be focused. You know, you just held up a bank, and 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 somebody's been shot, and you really should uh, consider, you know, getting over the line and 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 dealing with the relationship aspect later and that that kind of took a, a lot of the wind out of uh the sales of the film for me too yeah and there, there's a scene where she's showering and once again indoor showers was that a thing in in texas in the 30s maybe i don't know yeah. i don't know but uh and she's off screen while he uh eugene stands there and watches her and we don't see her until finally the camera dollies in and he takes her in his arms and i guess the fact that she's naked is kind of an is kind of a uh, I, I would assume is thematic or or supposed to be an allegory for the fact she's finally opening up to him and being honest with him and being you know 
she's being naked both literally and figuratively to him. But it was such a weird choice. I was, yeah, you know, it was a really like, clunky scene. It's like two or three minutes, this long, slow camera dolly where I, I'm annoyed because I can't see her. She's out of the shot. <laughs> and, uh, and then when we do see her in all her glory, um, you know, the, that the directorial decisions, again, it speaks to a uh, stylistic choices that just didn't serve the film. I don't think. Yeah, I guess he was borrowing that trick that Polanski does in Rosemary's Baby. Yes, that's Ruth, right. Ruth Gordon's on the phone, but you can't see her face. So everyone leans over to yeah. look around the, the the corner of the door jam. But uh, yeah, it doesn't. It doesn't. I don't. I don't know if it worked here. No, not not so much. Um, but uh, but yeah. So I mean, you know, I can't really recommend it other than for some of the performances. Uh, and Condon, of course, is great. And all those other movies I mentioned and TV series, that's probably where you should go and, and check her out. As well, of course, as Banshees of Inisherin. I, uh, I, you know, I really like Banshees. It was one of my favorite films of last year, but I would be surprised if it wins much at the Oscars. I can't, I just don't think it's got much momentum at this point. It might win, you know, I mean, I, I think that Farrell is entirely deserving of best actor, but uh, I will be surprised if he if he wins. Um, anyway, so let's yeah. let's move on. Um, I mean, unless you have any predictions, uh, Stephen, for the uh, for the Oscars. Not really. Like that. That's a pretty tough uh, category for uh, actress in supporting role. And I'm, I'm leaning towards Hong Chow uh, in that category, uh, who we'll be talking about uh, later in the in the show. But you never know. It could. I mean, Jamie Lee Curtis is, I, I always, I always wonder like about the kind of career, um, recognizing award, you know, that, yeah. that, that they don't happen as much as they used to. There's, there's been a number of times where I've predicted wins based on not necessarily the role that, um, was given, but you know, it, it's often like a career thing mm-hmm. and, uh, I find that's happening less. So I, I, I used to predict based on that cause it used to happen a lot. Yeah. Like, you know, Sean Connery getting it for what, the, untou- the Untouchables. Yeah, and, Al Pacino, Incent of a Woman. You know, Whoopi Goldberg for Ghost and, and all this kind of stuff. And, and uh, you know, saying that's the Oscar she should have got for the color purple. Oh. Um, but I find there's a little, I think I think the, the voters in the Academy are a little more conscious of those kinds of decision making and trying to avoid yeah. making those kind of choices, I guess. But, uh, and because we have a kind of a, a fairly un- unconventional uh, batch of films uh, amidst some of the sort of the heavy hitters that it's hard to, to say if uh, which way it'll go. Yeah, no, for sure. And speaking of, of unconventional, the way that Andrea Reisberg was nominated <laughs> yeah. this year, I mean, the fact that she was sort of nominated with this sort of social media campaign may overshadow the whole affair, which would be too bad because she's excellent in Two Leslie, which is, uh, I mean, she's an English actor embodying the troubled, a troubled Texas woman, an alcoholic who's you know, her life is falling apart as she's alienating her friends and her adult son. She gets one last chance to clean up her act and we're never really sure if it'll take. Um, and it's a difficult indie drama about addiction. Uh, and there were times when it was a little too rough for me, but I thought that, you know, her performance is unimpeachable. Uh, Andrew Riseborough in Two Leslie is amazing. Uh, I don't think there's a chance in hell she's going to win, but she is so good yeah. in it. I'm glad she's being recognized. Yeah, she's, I, I mean, she's worth seeing any movie that she's in, really. Uh, and and I, I feel like no two roles have been the same. I, I don't know if she's like the modern day Meryl Streep. Yeah. At this point. Or Daniel Day-Lewis. Yeah, yeah exactly. Where she just em- embodies a completely different person. She's not kind of riding the same persona. 
through every film that she's she buries herself in these characters uh, to the point where she can be virtually unrecognizable without makeup or any trickery but just uh just is able to transform herself uh in you know physically and 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 uh, mentally in these films and and uh you know, I, I never failed to be astonished by her. Yeah, for sure. I mean, she, I think her first role was back in Venus in 2006 with Peter O'Toole. Since she showed up in Happy Go Lucky, Never Let Me Go, Brighton Rock, Maiden Dag- Dagenham, there was the Madonna directed royal abdication drama, W.E. Uh, I can <laughs> recommend Welcome to the Punch, which is a solid thriller she made with James McAvoy. Uh, and her biggest part, I think in a Hollywood movie, uh, it was the Tom Cruise science fiction picture, Oblivion. Oh, and then, of course, Birdman, which won Oscars. I'm not terribly fond of the film, but she's good in it. Uh, There's the Tom Ford curio, Nocturnal Animals. She played the girlfriend to Billie Jean King in the Emma Stone movie, Battle of the Sexes. She was in The Death of Stalin and a great episode of Black Mirror. Um, she was Mandy in Mandy with Nicolas Cage and a picture named Nancy. Uh, and in 2020, she was in The Grudge. And my favorite film from that year, Brandon Cronenberg's Possessor. Uh, I can strongly recommend her in a film now on Amazon Prime called uh, Luxor, set in Egypt. She was in The Electrical Life of Louis Wayne with Benedict Cumberbatch, David O. Russell's Amsterdam, and the musical adaptation of Matilda. So that's just some of what she's done and a lot of great movies. Yeah, it's it's the four, you know, those four roles in 2022 alone, you know, just an I, I'm curious about Please Baby Please. It looks like a, a, a pretty interesting film with a, with a good cast, but I uh, I haven't seen it myself, the Andrea Amanda Kramer film. I don't mm. know, have you seen that with Demi Moore? I have not yet, no, no. Uh, I'll have to look that up. It looks like an interesting kind of weird psychosexual period piece. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. So what we did watch was Shadow Dancer from 2012, directed by James Marsh and written by Tom Bradby, where Riseboro plays Colette, who was born into a family tied to the IRA, there's Ireland again, and has grown up as one of its soldiers. And it's 1993, and she's caught carrying a bomb onto the London underground, though it's one that she apparently didn't have any intention of setting off. Now, Mac, played by Clive Owen, is the British intelligence man watching this corner of Northern Ireland. He gives Colette one chance to avoid life in prison away from her young son, report to him on what her brothers and friends are up to. Of course, one of her brothers is played by Donald Gleeson, the other by Aidan Gillen of The Wire and Game of Thrones fame. And then there's Gillian Anderson as Clive Owen's boss, who has plans of her own that don't involve him or his double agent. And there may be another tout or another another double agent in the mix. This is a great cast. And I was very glad for subtitles for the yes. accents. <laughs> uh, I thought it's really suspenseful. There's something about the editing and the gritty cinematography. It's a thriller that tries to use its lack of production value as an advantage. It feels like it, you know, it feels like almost a kitchen sink drama. Um, I, I really liked it. it. I don't think it quite sticks the landing, but it is a fantastic you know, a, a fascinating film. Yeah. It, it's a, it's a great, uh, look at sort of sub subterfuge and the relationship between British secret service and, and the IRA in, in a way that, uh, I haven't seen in a ton of feature films. Uh, so I appreciated that. And of course that is a powerhouse cast, maybe, you know, punching a little, uh, under its weight, maybe it's uh-huh. like, uh, given the, I, I found the script kind of lacking in areas. I felt like there should have been more, detail more things happening more uh, like when it ended i just felt like kind of i felt that uh 
there should have been more yes. there. Yeah. Um, given enough. given the, all the different characters and all the different uh, elements at play over the course of the film. But what is there, I thought was very good. Um, and uh, I didn't take very many notes because I was just trying to, A, follow the, you know, keep attentive uh, to the to the the dialogue with the, the accents and, and, and also just try and keep track of all the different players and, and what their relationships are and who's hiding what, because everybody seems to be hiding something. And, uh, you know, it, in order to keep all those uh, balls up in the air, you do have to pay very close attention to this film because there are people that are, are there's, there's some, uh, you know, double agents and then triple dealings. And, and uh, I, I thought that the characters uh, and the actors did very well uh, fulfilling uh, all those very multi-layered and complex uh, uh, roles they had to play. Yeah, no, I agree. Uh, you know, and it's funny. It's it, this is sort of a story about someone forced into the family business. Yeah, and she has so few choices in life that is this. The whole family is is united in the as product of a bloody ideology. And I think the film offers a reminder that in so many places, war is being waged by the men and suffered through by the women and children. And uh, it's. I think maybe that's part of the film I like the most was her. I guess taking some agency for herself and deciding who she is going to ally herself with that I, that I liked a lot. Yeah. I'm very curious to see what uh, James Marsh comes up with next. Uh, he did a heist movie with um, uh, King of Thieves with Michael Caine. And he did a, another film called the mercy with Colin Firth uh, trying to circumnavigate, do a solo circumnavigation of the globe on a, on a small boat, which, which looks intriguing. I haven't seen either of those films, but uh, it seems like he has a knack for character drama that uh, I'll be curious to see uh, where he goes with that. Hi, I'm Lindsay Cameron Wilson, host of The Food Podcast. But you know what? It's not just about food. It's about people and their stories shared through the lens of food. The Food Podcast has been described as an audible fairy tale. How about that? You can find us on iTunes and Stitcher. So come join us. We would love to share our stories with you. All right. And on Lens Mirrors today, we are looking at some of the earlier work by Oscar-nominated actors. We've just plucked a few from the uh, the nominees, uh, ones, actors who we've admired, who, uh, you know, maybe some of their films, earlier films we haven't seen. And uh, yeah, the next one we're going to talk about is Hong Chow, who is nominated for Best Supporting Actress in The Whale. Now, Hong Chow has done a lot of television. I think maybe she got her first big break on Treme. Uh, she was also in Paul Thomas Anderson's Inherent Vice and in the series Big Little Lies. I remember her in the Alexander Payne oddity downsizing, sort of an odd sci-fi comedy. And uh, it also in the one-and-done TV series Watchmen. Uh, this year she's in The Menu, which is a movie I liked but probably didn't love. She's a supporting character in that as well. And she's in Poker Face, which I've yet to see. Um, she's... Now, The Whale, of course, she's she's very good in, and she's opposite Brendan Fraser. This is a film I saw in Toronto at TIFF, and, uh, you know, there was a lot of love in the room for Fraser and for the performers generally. I think I think they look the best here. But it is a film that doesn't quite escape its stage roots and is uh, it's problematic in places. Uh, what did you make of The Whale, Stephen? I... I struggled with the whale because I, I do like Aronofsky's work. I was, well, I think like you, I was one of the few people who liked Mother. Yeah, we talked about that. Um, we really liked it. You know, so yeah. I've, I've known 
and and I actually kind of like Noah, uh, uh-huh. just for its sheer audacity and uh, you know commitment to to telling this uh, this ancient story, and 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 actually kind of liked uh, Russell Crowe in that film. So, uh, you know, I do like the fact that you know he's he's willing to be audacious and kind of swing for the fences. But but here, I I don't know, I I did not uh, warm up to Brendan Fraser's uh, character, and uh, I, I don't know, I was you know I was trying to have some some empathy for his plight but at the same time uh, there's something something about him that kind of pushed me away from it I well he's very self-destructive yeah very uh, self-destructive which yeah. uh is is fine i mean I, I i can enjoy films with with characters who aren't meant to be sympathetic or, or what have you but uh but it seemed it, it seemed like there was a wall between me and this movie i did not get i did not get overly drawn into it like and i did i didn't like uh, sadie sinks uh, performance as the daughter, mm. I found her kind of off-putting in a way that felt artificial. I, I, I felt she was, you know, she's obviously, you know, mean to him and then kind of rejects him while also kind of being a bit of a parasite on him. And I just, I don't know that, that again, that didn't uh, endear the film to me either. Right. Um, and I've liked her and other things. So I, I, I think it was just something about the character yeah. that kind of rubbed me the wrong way. And, Fair enough. And, uh, uh, you know, I may go back and revisit it at some point, but, uh, but Hong Chow, I definitely, uh, liked her performance a lot. And uh, Samantha Morton is great when she shows up late in the film. Um, you know, she was terrific. So there are elements of the film I did appreciate. And, uh, and, and Hong Chow is definitely the highlight of the film for me as, as kind of the caretaker who has a kind of connection to him. Uh, I, I felt that she was fantastic in, 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 in having kind of the, one of the more naturalistic performances, I guess, in the film, one of the more believable. Yeah, for sure. Uh, now, her film Driveways, Driveways on from 2020 is on Hoopla. It's a slight, intimate drama. Directed by Andrew Ahn, the director of Fire Island, and written by Hannah Bose and Paul Thurin. And a more different film from Fire Island. <laughs> yes, entirely. Um, but, you know, also a great, you know, Use of characters, very yes. sort of, sort of, uh, like I really got the sense of, and there's a humor here that I also appreciate that's very much presence in Fire Island. Um, but yes, uh, Hong Chow is Kathy, and she and her nine year old son Cody, played by Lucas J, uh, they are both really good. In fact, Lucas is one of the better child performers I've seen in a while, he's really good in this. Um, he's got this funny character thing where he gets overwhelmed. He throws up, uh, anyway. So the two of them show up in a small American town to clear out the house that belonged to her sister, April, April has died and she was more than a decade older than Kathy. So they weren't close. And you, you know, Kathy and Cody find this house has no electricity and April was a bit of a hoarder. It is full of junk. Uh, so Sitting on the porch next door is a guy named Dell. He's a veteran, played by Brian Dennehy in his final role. He died shortly before this film was released. And he is entirely charming. And he and Cody start hanging out while Kathy cleans the house. And it is just great, this connection between this this much old, this older man and this, this like, nine-year-old. Um, and it's a summery place, and you get the sense of pace and life in this town. And Chow is terrific. You really get a sense of her prickliness. She's tough and has her shields up for strangers. And she, you know, it's funny, she's a smoker. And that's an interesting thing about her because, you know, I may have said this before in the podcast, but I find it's funny how in, in the past a character smoking used to be 
something sexy and dangerous. And now it's kind of a sign of anxiety or weakness. Yeah, we get a lot of that into Leslie as well. Yeah, for sure, for sure. Um, but boy, is this a fun little movie. I mean, it's tiny, but gorgeous. I really like Driveways. Oh, yeah, it's a fabulous character study. Interesting, I really liked Cody, uh, the actor playing Cody. Mm-hmm. Um, I did um, Lucas J. He's, he's terrific here. And we've had a lot of, I'm, it's, it's completely un- on uh, just a coincidence, but so many of these films that we're talking about today have had wonderful performances by young actors. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, uh, you know, that, which is a relief because it's not, it's not always the case with, uh, with some films, but, uh, it, the, the filmmakers that we're talking about today have really scored in the, the young cast member, um, uh, category and, uh, and, and the relationship between him and, and Kathy is very believable. Uh, I feel like there's a real genuine warmth between uh, the, the two characters and between the two actors. Uh, you know, you, you don't doubt for a minute that they have that kind of mother son relationship. And, and, you know, there's a scene, eventually his father does call and there's a phone call with the dad and mm. it's clear that <laughs> there's been very little connection, if any, over the, over the past few years. And so you really get a sense of her, her kind of solitude and her loneliness and then the fact that she's been kind of just been nose to the grindstone and then you know doing what she needs to do to to you know to make her son's life uh meaningful and and so you know the, i i felt that there, there was a real attention to detail in terms of that uh, that relationship and and this life that they have yeah no it is lovely uh driveways is on uh on hoopla and uh yeah and brian dennehy i mean you know we could do a whole episode on his career as well oh, sure. what, a, what a great actor he he has he was you know good excuse to watch fx <laughs> um uh, aren't you thinking of brian brown or is oh. brian dennehy in that as well isn't it the two brian's maybe it's both brian's <laughs> brian brown is the F- FX guy and Brian right. Denny, he's the cop that he teams oh, up with. Yes, you're right. You're right. Uh, you remember better than I. Okay, well, let's uh, let's wrap up our Lens Life Me Your Ears. Speaking <laughs> of Brian's. Lends Me Your Ears. Yeah, speaking of Brian's. <laughs> nice segue, Stephen. Thank you. Thank you. Um, the Outside Story from 2021 stars Brian Tyree Henry. This is another film that's available on Hoopla through the library. Now, Brian Tyree Henry, born in North Carolina, he is a Tony, Emmy, and Oscar nominee as we speak. He could win the Oscar. He's done a lot of TV, best known maybe for starring in Atlanta. In 2018, he was in Hotel Artemis with Jodie Foster. He starred in Widows that year with Colin Farrell. Um, He was also amazing in a supporting role in If Beale Street Could Talk from Barry Jenkins. He voiced a character in Spider-Man Into the Spider-Verse. He was in Godzilla vs. Kong. He was one of the Eternals, the Marvel movie. And he was in Bullet Train, which I do not recommend, with Mm. Brad Pitt. He's nominated for Causeway, which is a lovely film. It's available to rent, and it's on Apple TV+, Plus, where he, he works with Jennifer Lawrence uh, in and set in New Orleans. She's playing a United States veteran who's back stateside recovering from wounds sustained overseas, and he is a mechanic, and it's about their friendship and relationship and how they both are traumatized by things in their past and how they help each other. Uh, really solid movie, Causeway. Yeah, I... You know, I, I heard some reviews of this around the time it kind of appeared, but because it was, it kind of went straight to Apple. So, um, I, and I haven't had Apple in a while, so mm-hmm. I didn't get a chance to see it uh, until finally uh, shelling out the what six ninety nine, whatever they charge to watch a movie on there at the moment. But it, but I'm glad I did. It, it's a wonderful film. I, Jennifer Lawrence is is also like Colin Farrell, a, a leading actor who is not afraid to do things that uh, that you know, push their boundaries and take them to new places or something that may not be a, a big, 
you know, box office smash. What if, it, if it's, you know, maybe they, they're abiding by the role. If it's an interesting role and maybe goes to an interesting location, then in, in this case, it's in New Orleans. And, mm-hmm. uh, you know, who wouldn't want to spend some time in New Orleans? So uh, yeah, I'm guessing that uh, that Jennifer Lawrence has some other um, career priorities at this stage and just doing yeah. the work that she wants to do and that, that pleases her professionally. For sure. And she produces as well. Yes. So that's a big part of it. But yeah, let's talk about the outside story with the time we have left here. Uh, Brian Tyree Henry is Charles Young. He's living in a lovely apartment in Brooklyn, Park Slope area, I think. He's on deadline putting together an in-memoriam reel for TCM, I think, Stephen, you yes. must really connect with this character. <laughs> I um, certainly did. And he locks himself out of his apartment without his shoes, and his cell phone all has almost no juice, and it leads him on a bit of adventure around his building. He's getting over a breakup. This is a remarkably simple yet effective tale of a man who's kind of an introvert and heartbroken. He just, you know, he, he broke up with Isha, played by Star Trek Discovery's Sonequa Martin-Green, the last thing he wants is to be locked out right now and dealing with other people. People like Sunita Manny as Officer Slater. She's amazing. Or her, or his upstairs neighbor, Andre, played by Michael Cyril Creighton and all their lives and weirdnesses. It's a great comedy. It's very light and very charming. Yeah, it's uh, it's interesting. I, I mean, Brian Tyree Henry, I'd, I'd noticed in sort of smaller character roles over the years. I think I probably first saw him on Boardwalk Empire. And then really took notice uh, in... Uh, uh, I believe uh, Kong versus Godzilla, where he <laughs> plays uh, this super hyper paranoid conspiracy theory podcaster. <laughs> right, right. And uh, it's such a like the, the polar opposite of his character here. You know, he was he was so sort of manic in in that film, and then here he's like this just this chill dude who wants to just get back in his apartment and finish finish doing his work and and get this uh, this. Um, in memoriam for an actor who, uh, according to the news reports that we're hearing, is clinging to life. <laughs> and uh, it, I, I think maybe that aspect of it is overstated, but it's, it's, it helps keep the story going along and help us understand why he's so anxious to get back in and, and get this uh, video off to, to TZM so they can air it the second that this actor pa- passes from this mortal coil. So uh, so the, there's, a, there's a lot uh, going on in terms of uh, acknowledgement of film lore, uh, you know, the 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 camaraderie between the neighbors i think is uh, that develops is, is quite charming and and off, you know, offers a chance of some some real uh, great character parts uh, from from actors that i've seen in other shows and other films and it's uh, it's it's a really great project that and he proves that he can carry a film on his own he's, he's a wonderful actor that uh, gets to do a lot physically in the film as as, as well as uh, have these great comedic moments yeah no for sure and uh you know it's it's. I think the outside story is a tonic for the post-pandemic blues. It's just a lovely reminder of the world outside our windows, especially in big cities. And and uh, yeah, absolutely recommend the outside story. And thank you so much for listening to this episode of Lens Me Your Ears about some work by some Oscar-lauded actors and uh yeah hopefully we give you a few ideas of some older films that you might want to check out and uh and enjoy and think about when these oscars are given out on uh, on sunday on the big broadcast lens mirrors if you want to reach out to us and talk about anything we're talking about or suggest ideas we are available on facebook we are on twitter and i have a, a twitter handle as well it's named after my blog flaw in the iris and I'm on Twitter at NS underscore S-C-O-O-K-E. 
Many, many thanks to CKDU for the studio facilities and for airing this show and podcast every second Tuesday at 5 p.m. And thanks as well to our producers at the Village Soundcast Network. And uh, we will be back talking about movies in your ears again very soon. Lensmere Ears is hosted by Stephen Cook and Karsten Knox and is produced in Halifax, Nova Scotia at Village Sound for the Village Soundcast Network. All music courtesy of Gypsophilia. Send feedback to Podcast at gmail.com. We'd love to hear from you. Thanks for listening. This was a Village Soundcast Network original production.